This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 484th episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today, the day before the 95th Oscar ceremony takes place in Hollywood and airs on ABC, is the first-term president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. She's only the 36th president in the 95-year history of that organization, following in the footsteps of luminaries like Douglas Fairbanks, Frank Capra, Betty Davis, George Stevens, Gregory Peck, Robert Wise, and Carl Malden. And she's just the fourth female, second person of color, and first person of Asian descent to occupy that powerful position. Janet Yang. Over the course of our conversation at the Lowe's Hollywood Hotel, where Yang was staying this week in order to oversee preparations for the Oscars at the adjacent Dolby Theater, the 66-year-old and I discussed the evolution of her relationship with China, where her parents were born, but to which she had never visited and felt little connection prior to a trip at the age of 16 in 1972, shortly after President Nixon traveled there how she came to be involved in the film industry generally and to specifically become the premier figure connecting the Chinese and American film industries before transitioning into producing films such as 1993's The Joy Luck Club, 1996's The People vs. Larry Flint, and 2020's Over the Moon, how racist jokes about Asians during the 2016 Oscars ceremony inspired her to become more active in the Academy, ultimately leading to her appointment to the Board of Governors in 2019 and to her election to the board's top officer position in 2022. What she thinks about a host of hot-button topics, from accusations that this year's Oscar nominations reflect racism on the part of Academy members, to HBO's decision to air the season finale of The Last of Us, directly opposite the Oscars, to whether or not the Academy should furnish Will Smith with the engraved nameplate that he failed to pick up a year ago after winning the Best Actor Oscar and then throwing Hollywood's biggest night into chaos, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Janet, thank you so much for doing the best. Great to have you on the podcast. And we always begin on this podcast by asking our guests where they were born and raised and what their folks did for a living. In your case, I think we should begin where your folks were born, right? I'd love talking about where my folks are. My father was born and raised in Shanghai, China, and my mother was born and raised in Hunan Province, China, which is known uh, for the spiciest food in the region. And and in America, there are many Hunan restaurants, as you may know. They came over in the late 40s as graduate students and had every expectation of going back to China. They didn't go back right away. They kept waiting, waiting, waiting. Should we? Should we not? You know, what's going on there? They were trying to get information. They ended up having three kids. And by the time I came around, they pretty much decided to settle in America. So I'm an American-born baby. I think Queens, right? Is that? I was born in Queens Bayside near Alley Pond Park. (laughs) I remember it so well. At five, when I was five, we moved to Long Island. Now, what you're parents did here in the States is pretty amazing. I know I read some nice tributes you wrote last year to your mom when oh. she passed away at 104. Yeah. I, want, I want your genes. But, okay, I'll give you um, some. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, she had a pretty incredible trailblazing I, life too. I think of her so often. She really is my role model. I could mm. tear up just thinking about it because somehow she did it all. You know, she came up, she was already had a very, very uh, 
jagged childhood growing up. Her father was a Supreme Court judge and so traveled quite a bit all over the country. Mm -hmm. She, because of the Japanese invasion of China, because of the turmoil in China, she got moved from place to place and went to boarding schools. And she grew up apparently missing her family quite a bit. She didn't see her dad that much. Her mother was uh, completely uneducated. Apparently when her father wrote letters to the mother. My mother had to read them. Mm -hmm. So she lived at this incredible transitional period where her older sister had bound feet, um, was in an arranged marriage, and my mother somehow just hit uh, at a point where everything was changing. So she didn't have bound feet. She was in arranged marriage, but she got out of it. She came to America and had a completely different life. Working at the UN. And she came and she was very lucky. You know, it was, very, it was the 50s. It was the Red Scare. It was very difficult for Chinese to find their place here. And fortunately, through some friends, she got a, a, a job at the United Nations, just ended up staying there for the rest of her career. Amazing. So you have said growing up in America, you didn't really have any particular sense of understanding or connection to China, right? I mean, from 1949 until, I guess, Nixon goes in 72, they're kind of shut off from the rest of the world. Completely. It was like right? this big, scary place. One never uttered a word about it. It mm -hmm. was just one of those things you didn't even talk about because it was so mysterious. And that's how I grew up. And, my, and I think for a lot of immigrants, there is a sense that we're we're planting ourselves in America now. We don't want to bring the old world back into our children's lives. You know, there's so much suffering, so complicated, they'll never understand kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But suddenly in 1972, Nixon and Kissinger, I'm very grateful to them. They went back. They somehow made some rapprochement with then Chairman Mao, and they came back and they said, "Hey guys, let's uh, you know, let's say you can go over." And my mother remembers the the Chinese ambassador to the UN gathering all the Chinese citizens, which my mother still was at the time, and said, "You know, we are not that scary." She basically they wow. used some metaphor. We're yeah. not like some three-headed monster or whatever. Please, please. And that encouraged her. But still, most of her friends said, we're not doing that. This is too weird, too scary. We're not doing it. But she really missed her family that she had. I was going to say, so it's been, you know, decades for her. You're now 16 in the year of Nixon going there. And in that same year, you guys are among the first to go there, among right? the first. Suddenly you're exposed to it all there for the first time. What were your impressions? My first impressions were intimidation. First of all, to get to China at the time, you couldn't just fly into China. Mm -hmm. You had to fly to Hong Kong. You then had to take a train to the border. Then you had to walk across this rickety bridge. And the second you did that, you were confronted with m massive numbers of what they called PLA, People's Liberation Army, people in uniform with arms. And... It's very intimidating, and you they immediately pulled me aside. Now, I didn't speak Chinese at the time. They pulled me aside. They started interrogating me. You know, I don't mind talking about this now because so much has changed. Yeah, right. um, but that's that was my first impression. They asked me things like, are you discriminated against in America? And I barely even understood what they were saying. I was like, I need my mommy mm -hmm. to help me dress. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, we got through that. But then the next impression was arriving at the city of Canton or Guangzhou, which which uh, is one of the biggest cities that was also, you know, in the south, southern part of China and suddenly seeing about three dozen faces of people that looked sort of like me. Mm -hmm. And it was just incredible. And for my mother, I mean, who hadn't seen her relatives, relatives. Yeah, they all the people from all over the country gathered and they basically followed us for the three weeks throughout the whole country from city to city to city. And that was that was when I thought, oh my God, I do, you know, I have roots here. This is amazing. I didn't I didn't know who they were, you know, I I didn't know they existed. And suddenly I felt this incredible connection. Even though the country in every way was wildly different. I mean, it was, you know, the it was old, it was it was communist, it was, you know, there was military music blaring everywhere. It was very poor at the time, um, but I connected. And come back after those three weeks, go to graduates, or excuse me, go to undergrad at Brown. Yes. Where I guess maybe because of that trip, you're suddenly now interested in China completely, studies? Completely. There was yeah. something very deeply psychological 
that shifted in my system where I thought I have people, you know, as opposed to, sorry if I'm going to tear oh. up, but as opposed to feeling like so disassociated and disenfranchised. I was like, I have, there are people that, um, that, you know, I know where I came from. So I thought, I've just, out of pure curiosity and of pure, you know, I think a lot of our decisions are just based on healing childhood wounds. Mm -hmm. And I just took a deep dive. I was like, where? And then also seeing my mother, you know, I didn't understand my parents growing up. English was a second language. To me, they were a little boring and not very <laughs> funny. You know, they had it, you know, and, and when you become a parent, you become a more boring. You know, we had dinner every <laughs> night at a certain time. They went to work in the morning. They came back. Blah, blah, blah. Right. And it was like there was a certain regularity right. to our lives. And I was a kind of a rebel. I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. And, <laughs> you know, so just getting to know my parents better because I saw where they came from and understood where they were coming you know, what they'd been through to get to America and all the tough decisions they made. I mean, all of these things, it didn't happen all at once, but it was like layers and layers of just recognition that they'd been through so much and they they were remaking their lives from scratch. So, no, it's anyway. amazing. So, 1978, you graduate from Brown. 1979, relations are normalized. 1980, you are back. Now, this time... Uh, when I say back, back to China, but this time for extended period of time. Yeah. Um, why did you decide now at that point to go back and what were you doing there where I think, um, you know, an even more profound kind of understanding of, of China and maybe how China might be understood in America kind of uh, comes into place, right? Yeah, thank you for for knowing that piece of my life, which was really pivotal. You know, I just couldn't get, I had this insatiable appetite to know more. I was like, what, what, what was going on? Why did, you know, everything. And I was also quite intrigued by what China represented, you know, a country that came, especially growing up and thinking it was a completely unapproachable place. And then being very curious and because I met people on that first trip that seemed very human. And mm -hmm. I was like, it's, it's different than what I thought. And then, of course, when relations were normalized, things started opening up. I actually went to grad school briefly at the University of Michigan. Okay. And while I was there, that's when relations were normalized. I'm like, what am I doing in Ann Arbor, Michigan, when I could go to China? So I left <laughs> I left grad school, and I said to everyone I knew, I want to go live in China. How do I do this? And I had a, I actually took classes at Harvard when I was at mm -hmm. Brown. They had more you know, classes, and a teacher there said to me one day, I was working, I had a job in publishing. I was working for this magazine called Book Digest, which no longer exists, the Wall Street Journal uh, put out mm -hmm. and and uh, had excerpts of different books. So that was kind of cool because I got to, I was the assistant to the editor-in-chief and I got to follow him around to meet Tom Wolfe and Norman Mailer wow. and do interviews. Yeah so, that, yeah, so that was the only thing I could think I wanted to do, um, you know, with his silly liberal arts degree. I was like, where is that going to lead me? So publishing was an area I was thinking about. Anyway, it was, um, while I was there, I thought, I have to get back to China. I just didn't know how. So this teacher at Harvard said, <clears throat> let me help you find a job. And she did. It was with the Foreign Languages Press, which was a publishing arm of, you know, China. Mm -hmm. And so it was the perfect match. I, it seemed like a good fit because I had this brief publishing experience. And they were looking for young um, people that were somewhat bilingual, that wouldn't cost that much because in the past they used to hire these Russian experts and treat them with grandiosity, right. you know, like they lived in separate hotels, whatever. So I was living in a Chinese dorm, you know, eating at the Chinese canteen with little pebbles in my rice bowl and, and you know, living more or less like a Chinese person with some privileges. Right. Now, the idea of film entering the picture, I guess it was during that 15-month period, you go to the movies there and really are struck yeah. by something? Yeah, I, I'm watching movies and movie theaters. I'm watching television shows. You know, I'm just imbibing whatever's around me, mm -hmm. reading books, going to art shows, whatever I could. And I realized, oh my God, I've never had the opportunity to talk to Chinese artists, Chinese writers, Chinese filmmakers, Chinese musicians. Like this just never happened in my life. And even though they were from a different culture, there was a camaraderie. And I, I hadn't even imagined that this would be possible. And there there was like this just 
knowingness uh, amongst us. And they were so curious about my life. I was so curious about theirs. And I ended up helping a Chinese writer leave and I got him a scholarship at UCLA. And I was suddenly immersed in this world of Chinese culture. Was this the from east to west? Uh, yes, right? yes. Okay. Scott, so, uh, you know everything. <laughs> no, but just because this is cool because this is where, I mean, prior to that, it's not like film was a particular focus of yours, exactly. right? Exactly. So what, with an interesting sound guy, right? What was what was with that a, film? What was So the yeah. birth of that film in the sofa just last night, um, because Jean Chan is a governor yeah. now yeah. In, in, in the documentary branch, and she regaled. We had our dinner for documentarians right. last night, and she regaled everybody with our 40-year history of, like, starting with that movie, and it was so much fun. She remembered things that I didn't even remember. So, yeah, I helped this guy, you know, come over. He's living with my parents, who had then moved to Scarsdale. I never really grew up there, but mm -hmm. they, they moved up. They did the, you know, suburban uh, upward spiral. And... I was already feeling a little bit burdened because I now have this person that I have to take care of. I have to introduce. I have to. His English is poor. I have to introduce him to how to go shopping and yeah. open up a banking. And he just says to me one day, "I want to make movie." I'm like, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't be making fun of his accent, but he didn't speak sure. good English. He still doesn't speak good English. I want to make movie. I was like, "Oh my God, Yaping, what do you mean?" Like, I was already feeling like now. Not only do I have to like buy you clothes, <laughs> I have to like figure out how to make, how a, to movie. make a movie. And I said, I don't know, Yaping, where are we going to get the money to make a movie? He said, and he looks around my parents' neighborhood. He said, money, people here have money. I'm like, what? You're just going to go up to people and say you want money for a movie? And he said, good idea. I swear to God, That's how it and all we began. didn't even we didn't even know who our relative who I mean who our neighbors were yeah, because right. everyone's hidden behind. Right. And he literally went up to neighbors and he came back one day, Janet, your neighbor Durst, not the Durst, not the criminal Durst, right. Durst, Durst owned much real estate wow. in Manhattan. He they ended up giving us money. Comes back another day, Janet, your neighbor Seymour Topping. <laughs> who is the publisher of the New York Times. I was like, what? And then, of course, my parents felt they had to. So we made this film. We had to find a bilingual crew. We ended up um, uh, hiring. I, I met some people at NYU, and among them was Jean yep. Chan. And then she said, oh, let me find some other bilingual. None of them were from mainland, okay, right. except for the, the person on the camera. And, but anyway, our uh, the, the, the moral of the story is that um, our sound man ended up being angry. <laughs> So we were just like so this ragtag team. We didn't know what the hell we were doing, but we, you know, managed to make this movie that we sold Disney Channel. But well, it, was, it was super fun. I mean, between so between the time that you were in China seeing Chinese films and now back in America making a film with Chinese people, this is sort of setting the tone for everything else, right? I mean, you've now, yes. I guess the first um, thing really was that... Uh, you go to San Francisco, right? And yes. this is actually when Tom Letty just died, you were saying that no. he was one of the first people where you're there primarily to yeah. try to, I guess, bring Chinese films to America, right? Yeah. Which was not commonplace it at was, all. It was, didn't exist at all. Yeah. It didn't exist at all. And I just started seeing, I mean, it was really an interesting time. In some ways, even, a, you know, a friendlier time. People were curious. First of all, that East to West crew, again, was... Taiwan, we joked about this all, and it was people from Taiwan, Hong Kong, and mainland, and here we were in America, and we could do this. We could all, you know, while politically, globally, they were not friends, in America, we could all be friends, and that was very heartwarming. I go to San Francisco, I, I was, in the meantime, got a business degree at Columbia, so I had mm -hmm. a piece of paper. <laughs> so I get hired by a job, uh, for a job in San Francisco with a company that wants to exhibit more Chinese films. I was like, that's that's the job for me. Right. And I arrived there and it was, San Francisco still is is such a friendly, you know, manageable size. So I met Tom Luddy immediately. He had already had a, a one a, a classic Chinese film that he and, and Francis bought, you know, that Zotro bought. And we became very friendly and he invited me to Telluride Film Festival. And I met all these people who were just lovers of international cinema. And Tom Luddy being for me the most Formless, revered at the mall. Yeah. I mean, he had this just incredible way of bringing people together. He just exuded, you know, this love of of all kinds of right. film and filmmakers. And 
So I, I was so happy doing that. I was flying back and forth to China, finding Chinese films that I thought would play. And it was the birth of the fifth generation filmmakers, you know, the now very famous Chen Kaige, Zhang Yimou. And so I was like, like, this is such a great job. I was bringing um, Chinese delegations to film festivals. And again, it was a very, very friendly time. Now that, how do you then, it flips because instead of bringing Chinese films to America, then it becomes bringing selling American films to China. How does that transition happen? So I'm in San Francisco. I'm in a basement office that I'm sharing with Wayne Wang. He's yes. making dim sum at the time. He had already made uh, Chan is Missing. Right. We were, you know, we our desks were doors and on, I mean, it was like, you know, very uh, down home. And, and I get this strange call one day. I said, hi, my name is Skip Paul. <laughs> I'm from MCA. And there's a long pause. I'm like, MCA. He's like, it's not a phone company. Because at the time, remember, there's MCI. MCI, right. And he said, yeah, we 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 own Universal Studios. We have 17,000 employees or whatever. I was like, oh, oh. Well. <laughs> and he said, can I come see you? And he visits me in the San Francisco office. And it turns out he was living in the Bay Area, but he had just been hired by Lou Wasserman and Sid Scheinberg to start his own division and just to do things outside the box. And one of the things he said is, I really want to open up the China market. Mm -hmm. And he found me in a San Francisco paper when we opened up the theater. And before I knew it, I was now living in Los Angeles with an office in the Black Tower and still flying back and forth to lot, China yeah. and still dealing with the same big organization in China that did all the import, export, exhibition, distribution, but now going through American uh, studio libraries to pluck what we thought were the best films to show in China. And we're talking about not like new releases. Not these are these guys haven't had American films since 1949. I know. And that was what was incredible. So we had to, I, you know, I really gauge like what, first of all, it was good that we weren't showing new films because we wanted to keep the value, retain the right. value of those films, right. you know. But also it's like if they had seen Star Wars or Back to the Future, they, their minds would have been blown. Right. I don't, they wouldn't have been able yeah, to. Yeah. So... The, the probably the most popular of the first crop of films was Roman Holiday. And, and I, we were able to bring Gregory Peck over. That's like one of the high points of... I have to say, I saw the picture and I'm like, this is like that photo of young Bill Clinton meeting JFK. Like, do you think that, you think that Gregory Peck, if you had told him, all right, Gregory, in 40 years or whatever, 30 years, this, you're going to, this photo is going to have two Academy presidents. That's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. If you had told me, I would have said you're <laughs> out of your mind. Um, but yeah, that was the kind of, you know, it was just so special to, I remember um, every, and by the way, back then, 35 Miller print Prince. That was the You're only way. I was it, yeah. literally in <laughs> in so many occasions. I found myself dealing with these thirty five millimeter prints. Right. My bicep right. muscles. Um, yeah. So just seeing how the Chinese audiences responded to Gregory Peck to to the films. We'd sometimes bring over new films that were gentler, like Out of Africa. I right. remember, which also became the people. I remember friends of mine saying, the music from out of Africa, oh my God. And it put them in a different dreamscape. Mm -hmm. You know, they hadn't seen anything like that before. And and it was just, I saw, I saw it on both sides. I saw the discover, I, the, the, you know, motion pictures and, and the, how it, the, the really deep visceral effect it has on people in ways that you can't even describe. Words cannot describe it. It's not a literal thing at all. Well, so all of these ways that we've listed and then a few that I'm going to still come to, I mean, it's, you were probably the, I mean, were and maybe still are that foremost bridge between these two kind of worlds of cinema. And I guess the biggest manifestation of that up to that point would be because you're dealing with Universal, that is also the company that is where, where Amblin was, yes. which is the production company of Spielberg, yes. which by, I mean, it's kind of a lot of things had to align for this all to work out that <laughs> he now wants to make a movie in China called the, uh, geez, I'm, Empire of I, the I, Sun. Empire of I'll the help Sun. you. I'm, no, I'll only, help you. <laughs> only because I'm also thinking about The Last Emperor, exactly. which is the same year. A little year. confusing, right? right? But Lucci's in Beijing, yeah. making Last Emperor historic. Right. Stevens in, we're in Shanghai making Empire of the Sun historic to giant filmmakers opening yeah. up China, so to speak. And, and so, how, but he's now, so because of the Universal being part of that family, you're, you're approached by Spielberg? 
Yes. Well, I think because I was known as the only person in Hollywood that was flying back and forth right. to China. And I, I again, I'm, I credit Skip Paul, who's always been so supportive of me, even though it meant leaving my job for a, a long time. And Kathy Kenny's office just called one day and said, we'd like to talk to you. And took a little golf cart to the what they called the Taco Bell offices. Right. Yeah, 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 on the yeah, universe yeah. a lot. <laughs> And we chatted and she said, you, you, we really would like you to come on to this movie. So this is a Warner Brothers movie. How is that going to happen? But of course, Steven, Sid, you know, Steve Ross. I mean, they worked it out. Yeah, sure. I <laughs> mean, you were, you were a valuable person. <laughs> who knows what was bartered to make that possible. <laughs> but um, so you're there in Shanghai doing that. <sighs> this is the same year that The Last Numbers, as, you, as we said, is being made, ends up winning best picture for that year yeah. in early 88. And then in 89, Tiananmen yeah, no, Square. I know. So those two movies, I think they both came out in 87, right? And yes. it's been so wonderful to see Stephen multiple times on the awards circuit. And we've just been reminiscing. And anyway, he, he's, he's become, he, he always was, he's just become this, I was talking to Michelle Williams last mm -hmm. night about how he's just become this incredibly elevated personality and the person everybody, every young filmmaker yeah. is bowing to. And that's beautiful to see that kind totally. of mentorship. Anyway, so, yeah, so we made that movie and um, it was literally, I thought it will never get better than this. <laughs> I am, I'm like, I'm ready to whatever. This it, this is, I'm sitting at the top of the mountain. And that was sort of facilitate, like just there hadn't yeah. been a lot of film production in China. Practically nothing. It was the moment in time we talked about this all the time. I was there for pre-production, like many, many months, I mm -hmm. can't remember, six months, eight months, nine months, to get all the permits, to get it help, mm -hmm. get it all organized, liaising between, and working our way up the ladder, yeah. you know? And Steven said something the other night, which I forgot, he's like, you told me, Janet, that we had to start, start at the bottom and work our way up and not start at the top, because then, and I was like, oh, okay, I don't remember <laughs> saying that, but that's what we did. It just yeah. took a lot of time to massage the relationships and organize and have a lot of dinners, and <laughs> so, we got this thing, and Stephen was, um, you know, our shoot was not that long. It was, I think, about three weeks. And mm. and then while he was there, and he's amazing because he's so, I watched this genius at work. He'd like arrive days early and go, yeah, but, 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 I know where the camera is, mm. I know. And then while he was there, I got to basically by his, be by his side the whole time. And we just had such a, it was so special. Had the film been shot or attempted to be shot much earlier, the infrastructure would be ready. Had it been much later, Shanghai was just in the process of transforming. So we could recreate period Shanghai with little difficulty, you know. And also because there was this sort of top-down thing, once the top, top layers approved it, everything fell into place, you, were in, you know. Yeah. I think Berlucci had, you know, a very similar experience. He had to get the approvals for top. So everybody was like, oh my God, this is incredible. We have this whole other place to, you know, mine for film production and then, nah. <laughs> Well, see, so yeah, I guess after Tiananmen, it was totally it just, different, it, right? Completely different. Yeah. And the tide turned, I was like, oh, darn, I sh shouldn't put all my eggs in one basket. Well, I, don't, I was going to say, I don't know if this is coincidental, but that same year of 89 is when you start working with Oliver Stone That's, producing, right? It's, it's not, not at all coincidental. coincidental. Okay. I was like, I, I literally thought, yeah. okay, shift, yeah, you know, mindset, yeah. paradigm. And I had I, I had been a universal executive for a couple of years after the experience. Kathy said, oh, what about if you're the you know, production executive at Universal? I was like, okay, that's yeah. great. I didn't enjoy being a, an executive as much as I did being, I really missed that, you know, I'm too peripatetic and restless <laughs> to just sit in an right. office all day, right. I guess. So I got to know Oliver while I was showing Chinese films. He came and, and he told me he was starting a company with um, Carol Go was funding at the time. And I literally said, Oliver, hire me, please. Yeah. And that was what happened in 1989. And the bug, though, of kind of wanting to be a producer even, which yeah. had not been in the picture. That was sort of what you caught working with Spielberg. Completely. Yeah. I watched Kathy Kennedy at work and yeah. she was my role model. She, I just watched how steady she was, how producers have to deal with very large issues, very, very small issues, everything, the full gamut. And just, she was so steady, decisive, clear. She treated, the, and this to this day, I feel very similar, like... You know, you deal with everybody with respect. Mm -hmm. it, nobody's 
up or down. Right. Nobody's superior. You know, every everybody has a part. And that that ironically is such a similar spirit to what Bill and I want to create within the Academy at the Oscars. Like we're all in this together. Nobody can do anything alone. Right. We are collaborators from start to end. We can you know, and we really need to recognize that that's the reality. Right. And um yeah. Well with Oliver and as you're now getting into producing yourself, I mean we could there are any number of things we could talk about, but I'm gonna just pick the two case okay. studies if we can. <laughs> Obviously the one that even more so probably in recent years than at the time people have really looked at is the joy luck club comes out first the book in 89 bestseller movie comes out in 93 but the fact that the book existed and was such a phenomenon is notable but that the hollywood studio i think for the only time since flower drum song is willing to make a that and that's going back to like early 60s now it's 30 years later why do you think Katzenberg and Disney even, I mean, obviously it's a great book. It should have been, but that, that wasn't happening. So why did they uh, respond to your I think, interest? In I think it? Jeffrey is a very, very smart man. Yeah. And when I look back, he is really responsible for so many groundbreaking films, especially when it comes to Asians, like everything from the Mulan series mm -hmm. to, to this, to um, the Kung Fu Panda. You know, I think he saw, and you know, he did have a deal. I, I made a film, Over the Moon, that was yeah. initially, made, you know, being developed by Dream, uh, or, what they call Oriental DreamWorks Animation. That was a joint venture that he formed. Mm -hmm. He just had a very forward way of thinking about Asia that others didn't. So he somehow did not feel intimidated by taking on a project with an all Asian cast. And thank God he was the only one. Everybody had the more typical predictable reaction like, oh, where where are the white people? You well, know? and I was going to say, like, I, I went back and was reading some of the coverage at the time, including New York Times. And there were, I mean, some of this stuff is so uh, kind of appalling. But the reasons that people thought, oh, this can't be adapted is that because there's multiple generations of of Asian people in this, literally the people are writing, how are American audiences going to tell people apart? How are, like, it's kind of unbelievable that they're writing this stuff. And then they have an article that begins where, I guess there was a, a very successful early screening of the movie and people come out and you and, I forget if it was somebody else, are standing there and, and they're, they're all, here, well, you pick, pick up the story if you don't mind, because you no, can tell No, they, they're like, you were so wonderful in the movie. I'm <sighs> like, well, oh, thank God. you. You know, you never know. Yeah, I mean. I, I, it's still happening, by the way. <sighs> it's happening. It's happened many times to me this year. No. You can imagine why. Oh, and it's God. happening to various other actresses. It just, look, I, I also experienced, I, I have now experienced being in the minority and I've experienced being in the majority. When I was living in China, I remember specifically, I was in an elevator one day and a busload of tourists came out. And American tourists, they were elderly because that those are people that had the money and they came in with their bouffant hairdos and makeup. And and there was this feeling like I, I they were little to me seemingly garish compared to what I'd been living in where everybody's right. wearing blue suits and whatever. Right. And they when you're in the minority, you tend to be objectified. I, I think that's just a basic fact. If I'm with a group of women and you walked in <laughs> to the room, you would be objectified. Yeah. You know, and I think so I, I just can't fault anyone, you know, it's not out of malice, it's like lack of exposure. Right, right. And I think we're in this period now where there's just more exposure and people just have to pay better attention. But the, you're, it's true that we're in this period of greater exposure, but would you have ever imagined, okay, so Joy Luck Club, I believe costs 10.5 million, makes 32.9, not bad, not a bad margin there. And yet it's another exactly 25 years before Crazy Rich Asians, and you for the next time have a all Asian Hollywood production. Now, at that time, everyone's suddenly taking renewed interest in Joy Luck Club and how you guys. But I mean, would you have ever thought it would be twenty five more years? No, I, you know there were some opportunities that opened up for the actors, and also people said at the time, "I wonder why it wasn't." I'm, I've never seen a film so well reviewed. I mean, right. like extolling the movie in every way. So normally, a film like that would feel like it might be an Oscar contender, mm -hmm. but it wasn't even, it didn't cross anyone's mind. Mm -hmm. It didn't even cross our mind, mm -hmm. you know? 
it was only in retrospects like, ah, oh, that's interesting. Disney did not attempt to put it out there as an Oscar contender, probably because they thought it was did, there was no hope. So paradigm shifts, you know, have been occurring over many days. We've seen a lot of change. Yeah. We have seen a lot of change. And it does take this kind of, you know, a, a lot of work on a lot of people's parts to change public opinion and to to just say, you know, and that's why when I have to say, you know, when there's now we're, we're in a phase where like, you know, how much diversity and equity should be should be promoted. And, you know, this I'm always reminded there's still work to be done. We've come a long way. There's still work to be done. Sure. Back then, when when um, Crazy Rich Asians came out, it was a time of reflection. Like, oh my God, it really has taken 25 years. But I was glad to know that that film influenced people. That John Chu could say, oh, our whole family went there, and we talked about it, and talked about it, and talked about it, and it gave him. And he's now given giving courage and inspiration to younger filmmakers. Right. And so, and on and on and on. And that's what it's all about. Lest anyone make the mistake of thinking that you, particularly in those early years with Oliver, are only making Asian-centric <laughs> projects, there's also three years after Joy Luck Club, 96, People versus Larry Flint, which <laughs> you have said that um, that had a couple of the greater challenges you've ever had to deal with as a producer. Number one, Milos Forman is saying, I'm not making this without Courtney Love, who's a self-avowed at that time in particular, like heroin addicted person. Yeah. So not an easy person to get insured. That's one issue. Number two, you've got Gloria Steinem and a lot of feminists saying this is not good. And you're having to kind of as the woman producer counter that, including literally debating Gloria Steinem. Just anything you want to say about about that one and literally having to you know, and also dealing with Larry Flynn on that one. Well, first of all, I would say that that was a time, I, I feel like almost every project I've worked on would not be made today. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, every film has its time. And um, The People vs. Larry Flynn, a film like that, at that budget, would not be made at a studio. And we would not get Milos from, we'd not be able to get Woody Harrelson. And it kind of mirrored a lot of the films that Oliver was making the time, sort of mid-level budgeted films with movie stars that had something to say, that were unique entities, you know, that really had a point of view. That was what he was known for. And I think when we, you know, were first approached, when, when the writers came to me, they said, we have this incredible thing. They might've thought, oh, this is an Oliver Stone-like movie. Oliver didn't, well, he was very busy at the time, he didn't want to do it. So our first choice after that was Milos. And, um, you know, it was a particular, and I miss those films, frankly. Yeah, I really do. Budget, yeah. They're basically not made anymore. They're either yeah. made for a much smaller budget or, you know, they're making. Those are and they're making, And they're making, yeah. they're, yes. And they're, they're, the studio's just making fewer films. So that's one thing I would say. The, the challenges, you know, uh, I teach this class at LMU in creative producing. I said, as, as, no matter how many films or television projects work on, each project brings its own challenges. So I, who knew that? Getting Courtney Love insured yeah. <laughs> was going to be the major challenge right. on that one, but um, it was in in so many other ways. It was such smooth sailing until we got to Laurie Steinem. Understand? I don't think she ever saw the film. She was so repulsed by the right. person that she just didn't. And she had been uh, satirized in, oh, in Hustler right. magazine, right. so she had a personal vendetta. Yeah, it was not fun to debate her on Good Morning America, or I believe that was show. Yeah, <laughs> Good yeah. Morning America, our friends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, that's just to give people a sense of yeah. the kinds of things yeah. the producer. It's not, it's anything that needs to be done. Yeah. And, and I would say another thing that I was immediately, the first two films I actually produced with Oliver were South Central and um, Zebrahead. They were both diverse films. I, I was just, he gave me no guidelines. He said, whatever you love, mm -hmm. like ad hoc. That's what he said. That's ad hoc, great. Just find things. You love. And I just was immediately attracted to films with underrepresented groups. And that film South Central, interestingly, apparently got him a lot of street cred <laughs> when he was making um, films like Born, uh, Natural Born Killers yeah, in yeah, the yeah. prison system, because they all watched that Little film. did they know yeah, that the cred was... Yeah, with you. Okay, so September 98, almost exactly 25 years ago, you go off on your own as a with your own production company. Mm -hmm. And in the years since, I know again when we could talk about any number of them, but just everything from Dark Matter with Merrill, right? Mm -hmm. This is 2007 to Over the Moon, which you mentioned, which was nominated. What's the best and worst part about actually kind of being on your own as a producer? Yeah. 
Well, one is just the, the financial uncertainty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was really nice to have that deal with Lisa. We we were, let's see, I think in 96 to 99, I was with Lisa. We had a deal at Sony, if I'm not mistaken. We had a three-year uh, production deal with Lisa Henson. We formed a company and we had a deal. So it's really nice to have that support. Mm -hmm. Again, those deals are quickly fading. Yes. Um, I guess it is just mostly the financial uncertainty and, and always having to adjust your strategy depending on what's going on in the marketplace. Um, I had a period where, again, China, the, after China was really shut down for a while, then it really started opening up. So I started exploring opportunities there. It's shut down again. So, you know, it, there's, there's never, you, you can never feel like, okay, this is what, it, you're constantly on your toes. And like, I know you've said, there are things that just even for, for somebody who understands both cultures and film cultures as well as you do, there are things that can sometimes blindside you. Like I think you've talked about this experience with making a Chinese version of High School Musical. Right, right. This is a huge brand here. Yeah. And yeah. yet it was a challenge. Yeah, it was really a challenge and it was something that – you know, I was working closely with the Disney team, who, by the way, are incredible. They're very, very knowledgeable and well-established in China. But they had their own agenda. They didn't, and um, they wanted to really promote the High School Musical brand. And I think it's okay if I say it was actually an interesting, uh, it was a favor that the film division was doing to Rick Ross at the time, who mm -hmm. was running television. And so it was like, yeah. you know, so they said, yes, we'll make several international versions of High School Musical. Um but in China, our partners were saying, this isn't going to work. All people care about are stars. So they had a whole other plan about how to promote that movie. They said, let's take the the act. And by the way, I was working with the director, Chen Zhejiang. We were like, we're just going to find the people. It was It's hard to find people who can sing, dance, and act, right? right. And who look like they're in high school, by the way, and was set in college and not high school. Right. Blah, blah, blah. So their plan was to say, let's uh, take these six actors and create a band and tour them around the country. And at the end of the year, we can say, by the way, there's, <laughs> they're, they're so popular now. And guess what? They all just made a movie together. And Disney said, no way, no way. This is about, anyway, that's the kind of but thing. But it's not a necessarily direct correlation of processes, right? Right. Very Complete, different very different, very, very different. I have to say, I feel very happy not worrying about how to conform or try to twist myself around to do things that they allow or they like. You know, you have the business, the commercial pressures, of course, and then you have the creative ones, but then you also have the political ones. Yeah. So 21 years ago, you become a member of the Academy and, but it seems like it was not until seven years ago that you were really activated as a member of the Academy. Can you, for the benefit of our listeners, can you share what happened at that year's Oscars? And did it make you want to slap Chris Rock? <laughs> Ooh, I'm looking yeah, over yeah, at Rock to say, how much can I say? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's out there. So I, I might as well just uh, repeat some of the things that have already been said. Now, it was, it was the year Chris Rock was a host. And it was the Oscars so white, and there was a lot of discussion about, you know, racial diversity. And so many of us were looking forward to it. And uh, what I heard since was, you know, Chris was under a lot of pressure. Some people were saying, don't do it, don't do it. And, you know, and there was this feeling like we have to give him carte blanche because because he's already doing us a favor kind mm -hmm. of thing. So I, I had an Oscar party, <laughs> and a bunch of us are watching and the show starts, and he gives a really cool monologue, I remember, in the beginning. And then not too far into the show, he's like, and now I want to introduce you to the accountants of PricewaterhouseCoopers. And he came out with, you know, three three children, three Asian children came out with briefcases and like, here are accountants. And it just was jarring. It was hurtful. It was like, oh, we're really being made fun of for one of the very things that we're most sensitive about, which is being nerds. I literally grew up thinking that all Asians were nerds. I really did, you know, that was the, and that's why I had the incredible epiphany and joy when I was in China, just to be able to talk to artists. I was like, these are my people, even though they weren't my people, but in a certain level they were. And um, so, so that was very hurtful. And then later, Sasha Baron Cohen said something about little yellow people with tiny dongs. I can't even believe I'm saying these words, but he said that. Yeah, that, that was the quote, exactly. That's what he said. And then he said, the minions. Mm -hmm. So I was like really disturbed. I was like, oh my God. 
But I didn't really know what to do. And then I thought, maybe I'll write an editorial. So I started working on something. And I had a friend at the LA Times who was like, do you think I can? They're like, yeah, send me some. So, but then I got a call from either David Magdale or Freedom Mock or one of the mm-hmm. groups of people that were also Academy members. And they said, we're writing a group letter. I was like, oh, that's much better. Let's let's find out everyone we can who's in the Academy. I had no idea at the time who was actually in the Academy. Percentages and names. No yeah. idea, no idea. Yeah. But we all called everybody and said, do you know? Oh, yeah. And then we managed to gather, like, we found out there were over 100. I, that, to me, was shocking. Over 100 yeah, people right. who were Asian and then we sent a letter and was signed by several dozens of people and very high profile. I mean, Lee signed it yep. and, you know, and then we got this letter back and it was like, it just, it was a nice lukewarm letter, but it was polite. But then because I had known Dawn, I was like, Dawn, do you think we'd come in and meet? You know, we were, we were being so, we thought we were being so stealthy, even like having this conversation. And she said, absolutely, come meet. And she said something really, you know, very powerful. She said, and bring as many people as you'd like. And I was like, I thought that was very generous. And so we did, we marched in there, you know, but we we had several planning meetings before. And like, what are we going to say? Who's going to say what? Who's going to meet? We're meeting at the office. At the time I had an office in Century City. We, mm-hmm. we met there several times like, okay. And I literally was taking notes. We had like a whole agenda because it was a big deal. I had I had no idea how the academy worked, mm-hmm. zero. So we went in there, we had this meeting, um, and Lorenza Munoz was there because she had just been recently hired, and she, you know, we made our opinions known, and then she said, let's, afterwards she said, let's go have lunch, and we did, and, you know, I said, I gave her some ideas, and then we talked about this, and then there was the A2020 committees being formed at the time, and then... This is just for listeners to double... By 2020, the number of women and people of color in the academy, which did happen. Which was achieved. Yeah. Which was achieved. And, you know, then I was on the executive branch of the producing committee. Kathy Kennedy at the time was the lead governor on that. And so it was coming full circle around. I'm like, it's yeah, come even right. more. It's like so many circles yeah. have have been closed. <laughs> um, and I just got more and more involved. And then I got to know Bill Kramer because of the uh, Museum yeah, yeah. Inclusion Advisory Committee, which was... Also, uh, you know, I just saw his genius at the time. I was like, mm-hmm. because we were sitting in rooms with very opinionated people, very rapidly opinionated. Yeah. And I, I watched what a good listener he was. I saw what a good listener he was and how he was able to assimilate all these incredible ideas and mm-hmm. ma- and execute them, make them better and execute them. And I was extremely impressed. And and then, of course, when the position of CEO became available, I was like, yeah, I think he could Bill be the guy. Be but also, I guess it was it, – so first of all, on I, I was there covering it when you – I think you spearheaded this September 19, 2017, the first new class of members after yeah. the – Chris Rock Oscars, I guess, welcoming all the new Yes, Asian yes. Oh, were you there? Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. that was we were so excited that we had a sizable group. Yeah. And I managed to get a sponsor, yeah. East West Bank, East Dominic Bank. Yeah. I said, Dominic, we'd just love to celebrate. Can we do something? And he's been such a huge we've had so many great supporters. He definitely yeah. amongst them. And he rented space at the Four Seasons Hotel. And we were like, oh, my God, can you believe we're doing this? That was not that long ago. Now- I don't know if you've seen it. I have a, I put it up. I've got it uh, on YouTube, the video of you okay. guys giving your speech there. And Uh-oh. it was, but I mean, that was the beginning of a huge, I mean, of changes. Community right. building. Like that was the first time we thought here, you know, I remember that so clearly. And then it was one thing after another, after another. Including that same, uh, actually a few months before that, you co-founded this place, Gold House, which I believe is, again, trying to just make community people aware building, of... Community building. Yeah. And the, I, I can't, ev- literally every day since that time, I get to say, oh my God, we have, it's just growing, 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 growing. And it is really, you know, and at this point, I barely can take credit for anything. I feel like everybody's doing the work and we're now really, Goldhouse really, really wants to be extremely, you know, inclusive and we're, we're doing things with so many other underrepresented communities. Mm -hmm. It's just been a brilliant kind of confluence of so many, you know, efforts. And then there's 
on the board after Oscar So White, there's yeah. these positions called governors at large, I think originally referred to as the diversity governors. Right. The point is, I guess, three three seats on a now 54-person board that are primarily, they're appointed by the president, approved by the board, meant to specifically make sure that diversity issues are being thought of in all major decisions. So you were one of the three. Yes. I think the second the class. Second, second class. But second two day. terms as that. Did you feel that that position was important and enabling you to to accomplish things by being on the board? Completely. I am a beneficiary and feel so privileged, really, to have had that opportunity. And then in my second year as a governor, I was elected chair of what was in the membership and governance committee. Then we decided, I was like, this, these two committees should be broken up, and they were, and then I became chair of the membership committee. And that gave me such an insight into the workings of the academy and really prepared me for this job. I think that was, um, without having chaired those committees, I, I don't think I could have done it. You know, I got bird's eye view of everything that was going on. And yeah, I, we, you know, and I have, I have friends, for instance, who are diversity hires in writer's rooms. And they're like, of course that was a help. Of course the door. No, and I'm not diminishing the, it by, but that no, was a. No, no, yeah, it yeah. was a wonderful. Yeah. And then, but then you have to show up and do a good job, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. but, but, you know, so for anyone who thinks they're not worthwhile, I say it, it, it makes a difference. Sure. It makes a difference. You have to prove yourself and in the end. Now you're in the boardroom <laughs> for several years leading up to August 2nd, 2022, when yeah. David's, David Rubin is terming out. How early on were you thinking this might be kind of an interesting thing to, to run for? And then. What do you remember about that night? What can you tell us about that night? There was, um, I think in the, in the, you know, maybe in the spring or summer, there was discussion amongst all the governors, like, you know, who do you think should be the next president? And people were talking to people and, you know, people asked me, like they, I'm sure, asked many other people, do you want to run? Because first of all, you want the person to really be available yeah. for the job, Right. right? And then be a, a person that would have the support of many governors. And um, I don't know. I was thinking about it. I was like, could I take this on? It's so funny because people say, how do you have time for this? And it reminds me of when I got pregnant. And I, I tell friends of mine who are thinking about having babies, like, you don't just have the time sitting there right. going, well, this is a time I've been reserving for a baby mm -hmm. or to be president of the academy. But you make it happen. You know, you just rejigger things so that it can happen. So I kind of knew, and, and you know, all throughout, as an indie producer, you never know when projects are going to land. So sometimes you're like, oh my God, what if these two or three things happen at the same time? It just doesn't, you just yeah. make it work. You and know? people so, should be reminded, this is, this is an unpaid position. You've got to, you're doing this on top of whatever else you have to do for anyone who does that job to, right. to, you know, Make a living in this business, right. so that's it's, pretty. It, it, it is. It is a commitment. It's yeah. an incredible commitment. But um, I can, especially you're catching me right before the Oscars, yeah. and I'm seeing the incredible teams of people. I've always been impressed by the Academy staff and how well organized it is, and how people really shoot for the stars. Like we have this brand. You know, it's a weird time because. The industry is changing so much. We, we all know the ABC contracts running out. Yes. So on the one hand, we have to be incredibly innovative. We have to be incredibly sharp and and keep our you know ears close to the ground. And it's almost like being a startup, but it's a startup with this giant brand and previously giant budget. You know, but we need now to think outside the box and go. Well, how are we going to sustain our future? Yeah. And so that's what's exciting on the one hand. I kind of, I, I do like new new things. And yeah, I, I like being sure. able to look, and starting at the same time as Bill has been fantastic because then we could get to look at everything from top to bottom. So, okay, last year was your last one watching the Oscars before having, you know, the pressure of it being kind of your baby. Mm -hmm. Where were you watching it and what went through your head when uh, yeah. the little incident occurred after the... Uh, well, let's just say the Chris Rock was. Yes, yes. I was in the audience. I was sitting, I, I think I wasn't in the, or, I can't remember. I think I was what they call parterre, which is right mm -hmm. behind the orchestra. And like everyone else in the beginning, when um, 
Will walks onto stage. We're like, oh, this is a funny bit. Mm -hmm. This is a funny bit. He's going to pretend he slaps him and then Chris is going to act stunned. And then, you know, like, okay, well, that's over. And then he goes back to see. And then when he starts shouting, that's when, of course, everyone said, oh, my God, this is real. Truly, it was, uh, you know, we were numb. I think everybody in the room was processing numb, mm -hmm. still trying to figure out. Then there was... You know, he, then he goes up on stage to receive his Oscar. Many people in the audience stood up. I think everyone's still numb. And, you know, it's hard to, it, it doesn't seem rational at this time when you look back on it. But that was the vibe in the room. And also this feeling like we're on live television. We don't want to spoil the magic, mm -hmm. you know, even though it was already spoiled. Like, yeah. But as you know, I... I, you know, we've reflected very, very much on this. And I I do remember saying in, at the time, we, we have these, we have a smaller group of officers, right? And I said in the, it was like a week or 10 days afterwards, we're getting decimated in the press. That's all people can talk about. It's like, we need to do something about this. Like, what's going on? And what I felt like it was a needed change, which we are doing now. It's like, I'm talking to you. I'm Jenny. I'm the president. I'm not hiding behind. Right. There were all these press releases that said the Academy states. Like, who is the Academy? Right. Who are the people? What actually happened? We want to know, you know, what is, we're, we're not just a faceless blank, right. you know, organ. we are actual individuals and everything that we do, and Bill and I are so lined up with us, it involves actual people. If you humanize people making decisions, if you humanize the person that's 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 rigging our stage, everybody, we're just a bunch of people. We are fallible. We are complex. We do, we're doing the best we can. And I said, I, I literally said, we need to put a name and face to what is happening out there. I wasn't the only one, but, no, but you, you know, got, I was you very outspoken. Have, it's even in just not even a... A year, it's been very marked. The amount of more transparency, transparency like accessibility, and all that. And it's, I think it's more of a fit for the 2023. I, I do think. World. I do think it's it's meant to be. You know, uh, we we are trying to. It's, just, it's number one is who we are, and number right. two, it it is probably more compatible to the environment we're living in with social media. Everybody, right. blah 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 blah. So, this is another. I know, kind of point of sensitivity with the academy, but. Oscar So White was 2015, 2016, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Since, I mean, you guys, the organization rightly took a lot of heat for um, the lack of diversity, not even reflecting the diversity in the industry, all of that. On the flip side, over the past decade, these are just some stats that I, I want to put forward. Best Picture winners have included 12 Years a Slave, the first film from a black filmmaker to ever win Best Picture. Moonlight, the first film with an all-black cast to ever win Best Picture. Parasite, the first film with an all-Asian cast to ever win Best Picture. And Coda, the first film with almost an entirely deaf principal cast to ever win Best Picture. Over the last five years at the Oscars, we've had a non-English language film win Best Picture for the first time, Parasite, Korean language. And that is one of four Best Picture nominees that have centered on Asian families, Minari, Drive My Car, and now Everything Everywhere All at Once, which may probably win this year, certainly the most nominated film of the year. Over the last decade, the Best Director Oscar has five times gone to people of Mexican descent between Coron, Del Toro, and Yaritu, three times gone to people of Asian descent, Ang Lee, Bong Joon-ho, Chloe Zhao, with Daniel Kwan maybe going to join that list this year. The last two winners of that award were both women, Chloe Zhao and Jane Campion. Two of the four acting winners last year were people of color. One was a deaf person. This year, four of the 20 acting nominees are of Asian descent. There is a, a black acting nominee as well. And yet, after the nominations came out this year, you guys, there are a lot of people, including some of your members, including some of the people who have won Oscars, who were in, in very strongly implying that the Academy is a racist organization and that that could be the only explanation for why some very competitive categories shook out the way they did. And I just wonder, uh, I'm not in any way saying the Academy is perfect, the industry is perfect, Hollywood's perfect, but isn't it kind of essential for the Academy, and I guess that means you as the president, to push back when these members are saying, you know, to imply racism after the things that I've, I'm not saying there's nobody who's racist, but is that truly an accurate reflection of the current status quo? 
it's all about whether you see the glass half empty or half full. Yeah. And I have had to remind people that this year is extremely diverse. When mm -hmm. people say, oh, this year is not diverse, I said, it's extremely diverse. But clearly, one community has felt left out. And understandably so. There were two excellent films that came out this year that did not see nominations coming their way. So on the one hand, if you're looking at that, if you're, if you're, if you're looking at black representation, this is not a good year for that. If you're looking at the big picture and the long-term picture, I mean, many years have had really strong black representation. Mm -hmm. So this year just didn't happen to have that. And um, it's diverse in many other ways. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, all of India is going to be watching the yeah, show, I think. All over Asia, people are going to yeah. be watching. Also, the diversity of the kinds of films, like, you know, people are climbing. Most people focus on what's lacking. So in the past, people focus on the lack of big movies. You know, this year we have big movies. Yeah. Sometimes people focus on the lack of other, you know, representation. And this year people are focusing on the lack of black representation. And, and obviously no one person has control over that. Right. And it is a reflection too of the overall industry. So, you know, Bill and I sitting in the positions we do, we hear it from all sides. Mm -hmm. You know, every every controversy that comes up, we hear diametrically opposed positions. That's just the nature of the world that we live in. Right. With our last minutes, can I do what we call just rapid fire? Yeah. First thing, maybe yeah. a sentence oh. or two that comes to mind. Okay. About, okay. You hear that HBO is going to put the season finale of The Last of Us up against the Oscars. Do you say anything to them or do you just have to eat that? No, we, we just, you know, we people are watching in all different ways. You know, right. maybe they're not tuning in. They're flipping channels. Maybe they're looking at it on TikTok. Right. They're looking at it on YouTube. People will find a way to see the show. We're not worried. There was a report this week that Vladimir Zelensky from Ukraine wanted to be involved with this year's Oscars, but that there was passed over. I know there's been sort of studies done over the years that when anything political is a part of the Oscars telecast, people tune out. Is that the primary reason for passing up it on is. that? Yes, we, we don't have time. We yeah. don't have time except to focus on the things that are most relevant and most celebrated on the show. Sure. I know that you know, as we talked about earlier, Chris Rock, it's a, it's a mixed bag for how I imagine you may feel about him. On the other hand, I imagine that if he were to come out and present Best Picture, there would be a five-minute standing ovation. Has there been any conversation with him about presenting at the Oscars this year? Early on, before Bill and I assumed our roles, apparently he was approached mm -hmm. about, hosting, about and, hosting and he said no. And I, I think he has done you know, the right thing for him, which mm -hmm. is to not say anything. And he saved everything for yeah. his recent show. But I mean, to present even perhaps, that's not as much of a responsibility, but is there any chance he would show up at the show? Um, I, as far as I know, yeah. no, he, he he's very busy doing busy his own thing. Okay. No other major organization in the world except the Academy has a board with as many as 54 people. Do you think it would make things more effective if we said to the 17 branches, have a runoff and pick two so that we can get this down to a manageable size. Would that be positive? Bill and I have definitely been talking about whether this is some a change that we want to make to mm -hmm. reduce the size of the board. It is it is a little bit unwieldy. They're wonderful board members, sure. by the way. So it's not it's not an individual thing at all. But the size is a bit unwieldy, and we are looking at that. Sure. Special awards, honorary Herschel Thalberg. Those got moved off the Oscars telecast a few years ago because I get it. They that's not, not going to help ratings necessarily. But the Governor's Awards has become such a successful thing with it's a must stop for every person who's in the running for the current Oscars. The one thing that you hear is movie buffs, you know, they miss the real movie buffs miss getting to see this. Why wouldn't it make sense, let's say, to put that on a TCM or something? Hmm, that's an interesting idea. I hadn't Might thought about fun. that. And we do we do honor on the show the governors. Yeah, they get yeah, There's a mention. Yeah. yeah. But I hadn't thought about that. Thank you, Might Scott. Be fun. Any yeah. other good ideas? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, one other. Why does it make sense for phase one of voting that people only nominate in their area of expertise? So you're a film editor, you're the only people nominating the film editors. You're a cinematographer, same thing. But then in the second round, suddenly everybody's qualified to vote for everything. All due respect to them, but what does a visual effects artist know about costume design? What does a film editor know about screenwriting? Would we get a better crop of winners if people just picked in the areas that they truly know about? Yes and no. This is another issue that we are looking at. Mm -hmm. So in certain areas, for sure. Though to tell a director that 
she or he doesn't know anything about visual effects right. or about costume design, it doesn't seem fair no, either, no. you know? So this is something, it's a very complex matrix, as you know. Sure. And so we, that is something that we are looking at. So to make sure there isn't like a really dissonant, like in, in sound, you right. know, it's like, why would that thing right. win? Because the, that large branch of actors- It's or just coattails, the most yeah. popular movie. Exactly. Um, why are we still doing Oscar nomination announcements at 5 a.m.? Wouldn't it make more <laughs> sense to do a kind of like March Madness selection special type thing where primetime, stats, graphics, analysis, like wouldn't that generate some more excitement? I love your idea, Scott, <laughs> because when I first heard that I had to be, I had to wake, I thought I was not going to sleep at all. But yeah. Then they said, no, you can show up at 1 a.m. Uh, I'm like, great. okay, I'll go yeah. to bed at 10 and get three hours of sleep. <laughs> You know, uh, but there's some, there's still that excitement. But yeah, I, I remember you wrote another article about this is how the Oscars could be prepared. And I was like, Scott has some really good ideas. Well, we are know. open to ideas. Sure. It, it may be that's no longer, in the past, you know, they had to, they'd get the nominations and they had to sleep on their couches in the that's office. And I thought oh that's what God. we were going to have to do. We had to like, just be in lockdown. Yeah, literally locked morning. in there. Um, why are the Oscars, why does it make sense to still have them in mid-March when at the very latest, the eligible movies would have come out in December. And most of them, as we know, so, uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once came out a full year ago at South by Southwest. That's where it premiered. And then, so doesn't it feel like it becomes so, partly because you have a million other award shows trying to, you know, piggyback on you guys that happened before, it sort of makes it seem like old news. Why not go where the Globes had been, for instance, early January, People are supposed to have watched the movies. Supposed to, but it's, yeah. it, people still complain that it's really hard. Like if yeah. you're working and you're on set and you're doing this, people have complained because it's come up even with shortlists. They're like, we can't see yeah, that no. many movies. You know, it, it's finding that perfect balance. Also, you have to avoid the Super Bowl. So, and, you yeah. have to, you have this, and you look Football, at the festivals and you yeah. look at the other, You all the other uh, Guild Awards want to come out before us, you know. So the timing is very tricky, but... Some people, when you're on the circuit, you're like, oh, my God, this is going on for a long time. <laughs> um, but then other people, it's push-pull, 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 because people are like, we need the time to see the movies. What's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Yoga. Yoga, okay. What's your favorite memory of watching the Oscars and then of being at the Oscars? So this is a two-parter. The, the Bong Joon-ho thing was a stunner, when I have he won to say. For, when he won, yeah, yeah. when Bong Joon-ho. You do, you do get a little bit of a feeling, I have to say, you know, he was just so beloved. He'd yeah. been around and at the nominees luncheon, the applause, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, sorry, what was the second the, Well, the first one would be just maybe even growing up watching the Oscars. Oh, my God. It was such a big deal. I, this, this is, I, I'm not going to mention any names. I was dating somebody at the time. His father-in-law just commits suicide. I had to travel really far outside uh, where I lived to accompany him to where he was going. And all I could think about, you know, it's like the whole families in mourning. It's like, all I could think about is like, I've got to get to, <laughs> to goddamn, the Oscars. I have to be in front of a TV. Right. Like, well, it, you know, every year, must, must. Will Smith never made it over to the governor's ball to get his Oscar engraved. So he's walking around with an unengraved Oscar. I don't, I only was reminded of that when I saw him on a TikTok with it recently. So funny. I know he's not the Academy's favorite person at the moment, but if he reached out and asked for his nameplate to be attached to his Oscar, what would he I say? I think he should have his name engraved on his Oscar. He he earned the Oscar. So that would be okay. he should have his name engraved on it. I don't know if he should personally come. No, we, yeah. But we, we can arrange <laughs> We can arrange, have your people yeah. call my people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, voting is over, so I don't. maybe you can answer this. Is there one nominee that you are most rooting for at the moment? You know I can't answer that. <laughs> Jesus, God. It's over. Voting's over. <laughs> okay, last one. What will you be doing on Monday morning? Sleeping. For all day, right? <laughs> as long as I can. <laughs> right. I hope you, you, you earned that. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And, uh, thank you, Scott. This is very pleasurable. Thank you really for doing your homework. It. it just made the conversation so much more interesting. Thanks for really being, appreciate it. I've being listened so good to, to work many with. of your podcasts. Thank and you're always, you. You, you're very congenial and you're, you seem interested in the person, in the whole person. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.